This message by Sam Shin, entitled "Advent Assurances for All Ages," was recorded at Wellspring Church on December first, twenty nineteen. The text for this message is First John chapter two, verses twelve to fourteen. Hope everyone had a wonderful and blessed Thanksgiving.、Uh, before I begin, just one prayer request: please pray for our church building. I don't know if how many of you、uh, pray over the building that we are building, but There have been many complications from the very beginning process, and we are still running into a number of them due to just some challenges with our、um, architect and different engineers, and and so our building team has been working even through this Thanksgiving meeting through this to still work out a lot of the details. And if I could literally go through every single thing that we have. Discussed and been challenged by through this, you think you come to realize what we came to realize is that this is a spiritual war, and、uh, it's there are so many things that go far beyond just practical details that we just think there's more to this than、uh, just some practical implications. That it really is the enemy at work, and he wants to do everything he can to stop us from doing this. Because I do think the gospel light in San Ramon is very, very important, and so if you would please take some time throughout this week until we get this done to pray for every aspect from the construction to the, the building managers, our general contractor, the architects, and also our building team, that would really support us well in this process. Because our hope is to be in hopefully by end of January, February. And it's hard to imagine that, but that's going to take the Lord, really. So please pray for us and with us together. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, we are doing a series in John's first letter. And if you have been with us, I think you can say with me that John. Who is often known as the beloved disciple? He's the one that spoke so much about God's love, Jesus' love for the world, and yet when you read this, it at first glance might not seem so quote loving. Truly, it is. If you understand love, you know that sometimes you have to say truth many times, and sometimes truth is hard to hear in the context even of love. But John has gone through great lengths to tell us why understanding the truth, the fact that some of us are in the darkness, even though we think we're in the light, and that's dangerous. And so, like a, a loving father, he's warning his church, his children. At the same time, you, if just looking at the Bible and reading it and taking a glance, and I'm reading the English Standard Version, you notice that our passage today looks a little different. Than the previous passages of chapters one and two, you'll notice that it's in poetic form, and it, it's very odd. It's an incredibly odd statement to make in the midst of it all.、And、I've read through John's first letter a number of times throughout my life. I've always gotten to this point and really never understood why did John write it like this, and it just seems this to to be a parenthetical statement to make in the midst of. A lot of harshness, not okay, strong word, not harshness, but strong words, both in as we talked about last week in verses seven through eleven, and then 
especially in verses 15 through 17, which we'll talk about the following week. Why does John lay out these words this way in this place? It's something that we need to really wrestle with because it does seem strange and foreign. And there are a number of reasons why. I think we cannot get away from the heart of John. John is a pastor. He's pastoral, and he's the apostle of love, you might say. And so just in case, if the church is perhaps filled with all sorts of severity and gravitas, he jumps in with this encouraging, fatherly, pastoral reminder of who God is, to remember that, to not forget that. And it's to warn, but as well to remember the care of God's love. So he wants them to focus on this, and he does so by doing it in this poetic form addressing three groups of people. And if you look carefully, and we will, that these three groups of people have certain exhortations that are specifically tied to each group. And I'm calling this message the Advent Assurances for All Ages, meaning that we're in the season of Advent. John's letter here is this constant push to cause us to remember that Jesus is truly our only hope. And in this time of waiting, there is hope and assurance, and it's specifically tied into different life stages. He addresses little ones, children. He addresses young men, young women, so those who are beyond those young years to almost be in those teen years, young adult years, and then fathers, mothers, old men, old women. And he does this to, first of all, not specifically to tie in directly as if it's to the physical ages, but at the same time to recognize that the physical ages that are listed are, that are differentiated by John, he has almost like a, um, a spiritual parallel to it. So he talks about young children physically and what does a young child wrestle with? And then he addresses spiritual young children. So you could be an old man or an old woman, but be a young child, spiritually speaking. And then he talks about someone who's been walking along the road, maybe past the young years, heading into the teen, young adult years. And what does that person battle and struggle with? And then finally, when someone is on the latter years of their life, What does that person spiritually struggle with or deal with? And John lays it out for us by giving those assurances, these assurances. So I want to direct you to that paradigm because that's sort of the picture that John is going to present to us. First, The first assurance is for the little ones, children. He says, your sins are forgiven and you know the Father. And he says this... Twice. So this is what happens. He gives that assurance, and two verses cover that assurance. Verse 12 and verse 13. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Why does John want little ones, physically and spiritually, to remember their sins are about forgiveness? So we're going to 
consider a few things. First, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins, according to John, is an objective fact. It's not a possibility. It's not a condition. It's not if God forgives you your sins. It's our sins are not forgiven after we do. They are already forgiven. How are, how are sins forgiven? They're forgiven for his name's sake. So if you think about it, it's John's making the statement that our sins are already forgiven. It's not after you do something, then God forgives sins. And that's sort of how we tend to view forgiveness of sins is we do something wrong, we ask for forgiveness, and then there's forgiveness. But this is exactly not what actually John is talking about. He says, your sins are forgiven, are not just past, but are present and future sins. That's the glorious gospel at work. It's what um, we read about in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2 in First John. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The question then is not, will God forgive me my sins? But really, in Christ, the question is, will I believe that God has already forgiven me my sins? Past, present, and future, forever and ever, in Jesus Christ. Will I believe it to be true? And that's really our great struggle as a Christian. It's not, does God forgive me my sins, but is... Will I believe God has, will, forever forgive my sins? And we struggle with that truth in our souls time and time again. It actually keeps us from joy. We forget the fact that we have been bought by the blood of Christ. We've been adopted. We've been brought in and welcomed into his family. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. You know, I love telling George Sneeman's stories, because they're always so good, but I don't need to tell one more. Um, he was talking to, recently spoke at Sunset Church uh, in San Francisco. And Sunset Church is primarily Chinese and Chinese-American. And he was running on the beach, and he saw a bunch of elderly Chinese women gathering plastic bottles and collecting them on the beach. And so, being someone from South Africa, he had no idea what that was about. So we asked some of the Sunset members why they were doing that. And they responded this way. They said, in the early years of Chinese immigration in America, Chinese immigrants faced so much prejudice that so many Chinese had no money. They were quite poor, and so therefore they would go and collect trash and garbage and do everything they could to get money, uh, traded them in for food or whatever it might be. But they added this. The funny thing is that today, these same Chinese elderly women who are collecting bottles on the beach, they own multi-million dollar homes in San Francisco. And they have plenty of money, but they still gather those plastic bottles to collect a few dollars. And when George told me this story, he said it reminded him of so much of us. You know, we are so wealthy in Christ, spiritually speaking. We have everything. But here we are going around collecting bottles on a beach, meaning our satisfaction is found in a Netflix or pushing our ways through Black Friday. 
eating food. Those are good things, but those are collecting bottles on a beach when we're multi-million, when we have multi-million dollar homes, spiritually speaking, in heaven. And it's, it's the reality that we still do not live as though we are adopted sons and daughters of God. We still struggle with sin. We still condemn ourselves. The freedom that we have in the forgiveness of sins is bountiful. And that's why John is taking this time to pound this home to those of us who are little children. So another thing about these exhortations is they're sort of meant for all of us, all Christians. But he's directing it to the spiritually young, the child. Not just physical child, but spiritual child. We all need to remember that the first thing you need to learn as a spiritual child of God is that you are forgiven. And nothing can separate you from God's love. And therefore you are free. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. That's not just something that Jesus says randomly. It's based on identity. And it's what frees you from the mocking of the world or trying falling into the pressures of school and the cool groups and you know social media pressures. What frees you is remembering you are in Christ. John wants us to remember that. And then a second exhortation to little ones that he cements in is, I write to you children because you know the Father. Verse 13. If you know the Father because you know he is your Father, then you never have to hope he forgives you when you fail, when you turn away. See, fathers don't turn from you. They don't give up on you. Because he is your father, you know him to be that. And there's no doubt about that. Then you know he has forgiven you even when you fail him. And trust me, he knows we will fail him. He knows what we will fail him with. He knows when, how many times. There is nothing hidden from him. And yet he still says, you're my son, you're my daughter, you're my child. We have some in this room who have adopted or are currently going through the process of adopting children. And adoption is an incredibly difficult process. For most of us who think adoption is quite easy, it is not at all the process at least. There are fees, there are home studies, there are background checks, there are interviews, there are forms to fill out. And if you talk to someone who has gone through this process, you know it isn't easy. It takes time, money, energy, effort, commitment. But my friends, our father adopted you at the cost of his son. Imagine the price to adopt a child was the cost of your other child. Who would do it? Who would adopt a son if it cost you the price of your other child? There would be no adoption, right? No one would do it. I mean, think about what God has done. To adopt you and me into his family, it cost him the price of his son. And then to, if you talk to a, a family who is adopted, one of the great challenges is to interweave that child into that family because they now have a, they have a history, a past history of previous parents, of all sorts of trauma, perhaps, challenges, difficulties, 
And they have to interweave that child into this new family and remind them constantly, you're my son, you're my daughter. But we are no different. We were adopted into God's family, but we have we come with brokenness, with trauma, with a self-centeredness, a deep self-centeredness that wants nothing to do with the God who embraces us and loves us. And on top of that, there was the cost of his son. So when John says, I write to you, children, because you know the father, in verse 13, he's telling this child, the spiritual child, someone who's just turned to Christ, he's saying, do not forget what it costs for you to be brought into this family, what it takes for you to be interwoven into this family, And the fact that no matter what you do against God, he still is going to pursue you, love you, bring you back home. When you remember that, you know that he is truly a God of love. And that's why verse 12, John says, it was for Jesus' name's sake that this happened. Again, the pointer, the, the crux of it all is Jesus himself. Do you see then why we need to teach this truth to little ones over and over again? Actually, the little ones, it's all of us here. And whether you are mature in the faith or have just turned to Christ, whether you are old physically or young physically, we need this reminder time and time again. There's never enough reminders for us. Because we too easily forget. Do you see why young ones, and I mean the old ones who are young in faith, you have to have this truth told to you. It is the key to our obedience with joy. Obedience and joy comes from remembering this truth. Without it, obedience is a burden. So if your obedience to follow Christ is a burden at all and an obligation and it's tiring, it's because you have forgotten what it cost to bring you into his family. If your obedience comes with joy, it's probably because you remember what it cost. And let me just put it to you this way. If you're drowning in the ocean and someone risks his own life, jumps in, drags you out, brings you onto the beach, resuscitates you, Afterward, you get up, you recover, and he asks you if you happen to have an extra shirt because he ripped his shirt rescuing you. You wouldn't hesitate to give the extra one that you have. You'd say, oh, I have one right here. Here you go. You would gladly give it to him. But if a guy just came right up to you off the beach and said, hey, can I have your extra shirt? You might give it to him, but you might, you probably wouldn't give it to him. You'd think, or if you gave it to him, you'd say, oh, that's a burden, or I'm doing my duty. So remembering that he has saved you makes obedience delightful, joyful. We we don't even think, oh, here's my extra shirt. You just saved my life. Of course, giving a shirt is nothing. I'll do anything to give thanks to you because you saved my life. Do you see the direct tie-in between the two? If I forget the saving of the life, then anything I do becomes obligation, burden, weariness, no joy. It has to be that we remember this. And John is trying to point out to each one of them, do not forget this. 
or you will be living a life of misery. But you need to remember this truth as though you are the little one. That no one enters into the kingdom of heaven unless he is like a little child. Remember when Jesus said that to the children? You have to be like a little child. Meaning you have to be willing to trust like a little child and believe what you see, that you see a savior. I love what uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon, when he came to believe in Jesus at a young age, he was under such conviction of sin that he actually had misery in his heart. But after he turned to Jesus, his life was transformed. And he wrote this, when my eyes first looked to Christ, he was a very real Christ to me. And when my burden of sin rolled from off my back, it was a real pardon and a real release from sin to me. And when that day I said for the first time, Jesus Christ is mine, it was a real possession of Christ to me. When I went up to the sanctuary in that early dawn of youthful piety, every song was really a psalm. And when there was a prayer, oh, how I followed every word, it was prayer indeed. And so was it, too, in quiet, silent quietude. When I drew near to God, it was no mockery, no routine, no matter of mere duty. It was a real talking with my Father who was in heaven. And so he said this at a very young age, actually. And the start of it was the recognition of his own sinfulness. You really do start there. You realize, I am a sinner. I need a Savior. Only then can you understand the sweetness of knowing Christ. Christ is mine. It should be anyone who trusts in Christ, at some point, there has to be that connectedness of, I'm a sinner, Christ is my Savior, He is mine, and then the sweetness of knowing Christ is there in prayer, in delight. It's not that, it's not that straightforward. There are dips and valleys throughout our walk in faith, but that, that essence is there. And John is saying that's what it means to be a little one, who believes, who trusts. So you can be a little one at the youngest of ages or at the oldest of ages. But everyone needs to remember this, this assurance. The second assurance is for the young. You have overcome. That's what John says repeatedly in verses 13 and 14. He addresses the young men. I'm writing to you young men. And of course, that also means young women. Because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. This, what John says to the young men, to the young women, it makes sense. They are strong. When you're young, you just don't think anything can happen to you. You can overcome anything. You know, as you get older, you realize, as your body slowly starts breaking down, as... Maybe your career path is set. Suddenly the, the things that you once dreamt about or whatever it might be, that seems the course has been set for you. Whereas when you're young, you just feel as though there's nothing to be afraid of. You can keep on going. You can keep on pressing on. And so John's second exhortation is for this person. Those who are not little children, those who are not elderly. Really, for many of us in this room, that's physically where people are at. A number of you are. But spiritually, it's the person who is maturing in faith. And again, you don't have to 
This is not about moving beyond the gospel. It's maintaining it, living it, pursuing Christ, not giving up. So you're there. And in this life stage, spiritually speaking, John makes clear that we have overcome the evil one. Twice he says it. And this isn't something that John says lightly. It's because it's true. That in Christ Jesus, Satan has been destroyed eternally. His his fate has been set. Now, it doesn't mean that he is not in existence, but it does mean that his work, his power, has been undone. All we need to do is look at Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 to see this truth. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Those two verses really tell us that Christ has overcome. And so therefore, young men, young women, we can be fearless. The thing about young men and young women is that they don't really see death as imminent. There's a boldness of life about that person. And there's a power in that boldness. Spiritually speaking, John wants young men and young women to have boldness to have courage, to fight fear. And Paul lays it out for a young man named Timothy, one of his disciples. And he tells him not to be afraid. Do not have a spirit of fear. And it's not just to psych him up, but it's to remind him that the enemy has been overcome. This doesn't mean that there's no trials or sins or failures all we need to do is look throughout the gospel, uh, the, John's letter to realize that's not what John is saying. But as followers of Jesus, we know the end of the story. And because we know that end, it is possible to fight in this world. And young men, young women, they fight. And they prepare for war. That's why there's military bases filled with young men and young women fighting battles. But look at how they fight, according to verse 14. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. That link is so clear. You fight physical wars with guns and planes and tanks, but in a spiritual war, you fight with God's word. That's what Paul writes in Ephesians six seventeen. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The sword is the only offensive weapon listed in Paul's list of weapons, spiritual weapons. You cannot fight without his word. And it is essential to fighting this fight of faith. Recently, uh, we were... And Sue had visited my eldest daughter, Chris, in college, and she noticed John Piper's fighter verses on her shelf. And so Chris had decided to take them up and use them again. Because if you can recall, especially in a secular environment, it is so easy to be undone by all sorts of intellectual, philosophical arguments that really have an answer. They are not um, these words that we should be afraid of. But the answer has to be found in God's word. It cannot be apart from it. 
And if you try to fight the fight of faith apart from God's word, you will falter and you will fail. That's not just for college students. That's for a young mother or someone who is early in their career and they're now going into the workplace surrounded by all sorts of ideas and thoughts. And to try to walk this tension of faith and life apart from God's word, it just can't be done. It really is a fight for your soul. And you need God's word every day in order to fight that fight of faith. So when we talk about spending time with God and his word, it's not some sort of ritual duty that as a Christian you need to do. It's a requirement for your life of faith. Without God's word regularly, you will falter in your faith. It has to dwell in you to sink in, to be a part of you. And that can't happen without time spent and reflection and desire in God's word. I've been reading Proverbs, and Proverbs just lays this out for us over and over again. In Proverbs 13, 13, it says, Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. The more you grow spiritually in years, and in those middle years where you're young, you're vibrant, you see more, how much more God's word truly abides forever and ever. God's word is what stands the test of time. And anyone who has delved in God's word at all, you just see more and more as you age, how much that following God's word actually leads you to more wisdom, more joy, more delight. It never fails you. What fails is actually when I avert myself from it, when I turn away from God's word and decide, I think I'm going to try to do things my way or what psychology says or what sociology says or political science says. And as I think about those areas dictating my life or what entertainment or what my friends think or what a, a spouse thinks and let that consume my brain, it leads only to darkness, sadness, despair, anxiety, frustration. God's word is not there to try to put an anchor on us to make it seem so burdensome, but rather it is the path to joy. The question is, do we believe it? Now, it doesn't mean that it's easy. Sometimes God's word calls us to trust him, actually all the time. Trusting him in seasons and moments might be very difficult to do. Maybe if I lie in a certain instance, I can get off. If I lie to my boss that I'm late to work, maybe because I overslept, it will make me look better. And in that moment, it seems good. But if that's a pattern of my life, I will see destruction in the end. And that's the danger of it all. Here's an example. God orders and designs the family. He started in Genesis. It's all throughout the whole Bible. And in God's design, a parent is the authoritative figure representing God over their children. That's what God's word says. But if I don't believe God's word, then I don't believe my children are sinners. They're actually just moral beings, inherently moral beings who are 
who are nice and cute sinners. I won't even use the word sinners. They're just cute all the time. Even when they're throwing a tantrum, they're just so cute when they flail like a fish on the ground. I know we don't think that way. But we look at that and we think, well, it's not because of sin. It's because some sort of environmental uh, circumstance has caused that child to act that way. But the human heart knows that when boundaries are passed, not just as children, but as teenagers and then as adults, that road, without God's word influencing them, without me saying, well, I am an authority figure, I have to teach my children authority. And the reason is because ultimately they're under God's authority. Once you lose that structure, you lose that child's heart, that person's heart. And it will play out in every stage of life. But it takes trusting his word, revering it, believing that God's word has the right path to rear my child, more so than what some friend tells me, what Oprah tells me, you know, what this book on parenting tells me. It takes trusting God's word that when I do so, I will see the fruitfulness of that in the end. That is a battle. That's a fight for our hearts. And it takes a regular ingrained heart of knowing God's word. So we cannot forget that this fight is ongoing. It's constant. And it's all about God's word. That is our offensive weapon, spiritually speaking. And we have to wield it. The third assurance is for the aging. You know the father and son. And he writes in verses 13 and 14, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And a repeat. John repeats, the Bible repeats words very intentionally to emphasize. When John addresses fathers, he's again addressing actual physical fathers, but as well spiritual fathers. He's also addressing those who have advanced in their years, who have lived through battles, who have, uh, it doesn't mean the battles end. The battles never end until we breathe our last breath. The Christian never stops fighting until it is all done. The fight continues to the end. Paul, in his very last days, wrote to Timothy right before probably his execution. He wrote in 1 Timothy 4, 6-7, through 7, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. This is a spiritual father speaking. And this is my prayer for all of us. For those of us who are perhaps on the latter years of our journey, my prayer has always been that even to the very last breath that I breathe, that I would be able to sing still of the glories of God and to worship Him and to praise Him, even with that last breath. And I've seen people take that last breath. And I hope that you can agree and say with Paul, I want that too. I want the very end of my days to be, to be able to say with confidence, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What is it that John wants spiritual fathers to remember as their lives draw to a close? 
He wants them to remember who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Who was there when that old man or woman, nearing the end of their days, who was there when they were but a thought? It was God who was from the beginning. Who was there when they were delivered from their mother's womb? And it's hard to imagine, think of whether it's yourself or a grandparent or a parent. You can't imagine your grandparent, your parent, as a baby being delivered from the mother's womb. But who was there from the beginning? Who was there when that old man or old woman took their first steps? When they were running around the woods playing with their friends? When they were studying for tests? When they were on their first date and their hearts fluttered and they walked down the aisle, when they welcomed their own newborn, when they're on the phone with a client or presenting in a meeting with fellow coworkers, when they're on vacation now in their later years with your family, when they're diagnosed with a dreaded disease, when they're in the hospital getting treatment, when they're lying in the hospital bed or at home with tubes in their body or out of their body, and when they're breathing their last breaths, when their eyes are slowly fading away, who is there from the beginning? No one in this room. No parent, no child, no husband, no wife. Who was there? What John is telling us to remember is that there is only one who was there from the beginning to the very last breath. And there's only one there who will be there eternally with you forever and ever. Do you see that it matters not how much cash you have in your wallet right now or your bank account or how many degrees are hanging up on your office wall? When you see your whole life from beginning to end, when you look at what John says in verses 13 through 14, he says, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning, who has never failed you and will never let you go. This is what matters. You know him, and he knows you. This defines you. It, it's who you are. It defines you as a father, a son, a daughter, a mother, a sister, a brother, a grandfather, a grandmother. Not your legacy of how much money you donate to your alma mater. Whether you have a tree planted with a little plaque that says, My name, Sam Shin is remembered here with this tree. What That is not a legacy. Or even having it on a, a building at a school. Or the respect you have. What defines you is that you know him. You fought your whole life to make sure that you never forget that. That you have fought the good fight. You have kept the faith. You have finished the race. And as you draw near that day, as you take your last breath, as you close your eyes for the last time, you want to say that you have done whatever you could to prepare for that moment eternally. This season, we are waiting for a Savior. A Savior who came at a great price so that we could be welcomed home, so that we could be adopted into His family, so that from the beginning of our days, 
to the end of our days, we know with full assurance that we'll never be left alone and that we have new life in Christ forever. I hope you believe that to be true. If you have never placed your hope in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, today is the day. Do not leave this place without him. If you have forgotten, if you have turned, run towards him. He's waiting. And he will come and gather you up. And if you have trusted in him, sing, consider him, enjoy him, have fellowship with him. Let's pray. Father, we turn to you. We recognize that you have forgiven us our sins. You have welcomed us home because of your son Jesus and his blood shed for us. I know, O oh Lord, that you know us far better than we know ourselves. That from the beginning of this day to the end of our days, from the beginning of our very birth to our last breaths, you will never leave us nor forsake us in Christ alone. I pray that there will be many women in here who will turn to you, Lord Jesus that they would not turn aside from the cross, that they would not rush by, but that they would remember who you are. So, Lord, we come to this table remembering the goodness of our Savior. We praise you in Jesus' name.